Good morning, church. Our first scripture reading for today is taken from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The second reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Renee. Um, those of you who are new here, we've started a new series in the Gospel of Mark this month, and we're exploring this question, who is Jesus Christ? As first to, told to us, by historically the very first gospel writer. Mark was writing to a Christianity in the midst of great persecution and suffering in Emperor Nero's Rome. And he was communicating that they could endure literally this fiery trial. Christians were being burned at the stake because Jesus and his gospel is one of a suffering servant. Jesus is the Son of God. And as we learned last week, we saw that Jesus is the one who comes with a greater authority that is greater than the scribes, an authority that is both word and deed ministry. So we arrive in this passage today in Mark chapter 2, and we're, we're going to be examining Jesus' compassion here today amongst the pressures of some of the very real tensions that are present where Jesus is proclaiming the word of God today. So there's three things about Jesus' compassion that I want to share with you all this morning. First, uh, Jesus' compassion to curiosity. Uh, 
Second, Jesus' compassion to belief. And third, Jesus' compassion to criticism. So first, uh, a little bit of context for you. We've jumped ahead in our story here in chapter two. So Jesus left Capernaum for a brief period of time after teaching in the synagogue last week, and he began performing miracles and healing the sick across Galilee, so much so that Jesus' popularity skyrockets wherever he goes. Uh, Word spread quickly about this Jesus who has the authority to teach and preach and word and deed, so much so that Jesus can no longer just go to a town without being mobbed by a crowd. So our story begins that Mark's gospel starts with Jesus who's now come back to Capernaum, whose ministry is incredibly and inexplicably successful and on the surface level, very prosperous. Jesus, as I talked about last week, has all the clout, all right? Jesus is trending Capernaum-wide and everyone wants a piece of this Jesus. So what does Jesus do with all this curiosity? Well, first of all, you see Jesus' posture in the passages right before chapter two. He's not interested in being a celebrity. He's not wanting his deeds to go out in the press. In other words, Jesus longs for his ministry to represent the humble estate in which he entered the world, unheralded, unrecognized, unrewarded, because Jesus knows that in order to fulfill the purposes which God the Father had brought him into the world, it would mean humbling himself, even to death even death on a cross. Jesus is the suffering servant. Still, the crowds find out that he's arrived. Word spreads fast, and after a couple of days flying under the radar, sightings of Jesus leads to reports that he's at his home, which was most likely the home of Peter in Capernaum, um, as Jesus came from Nazareth. So the curiosity of the people leads for Peter's house to be completely filled. The doors open, Everyone is curious about Jesus. Now, let's kind of examine some of the facts here. He's just come back from traveling, and all the physical exhaustion that can bring any of you who have come back from travel recently know how exhausting and tiring that can be. Uh, People have told others about his location without his consent, and now the place that he's staying in has been overrun by a crowd who are demanding things from him. Now, what would be your response in that situation. Um, I'll tell you what my response would be. Um, I'm an introvert on the highest scale of introversion. Every time I take that that Myers-Briggs test, right, I'm I'm like extreme introvert. Um, My parents are both extreme introverts, uh, so of course God calls us all in the ministry for some reason, right? (laughs) Um, Not only that, but you know, just, I don't know about you, but I I tend not to allow crowds of people that I don't know into my house. Um, I tend not to give into the demands of said people and to simply start just proclaiming things. I, I don't know, maybe you all are more like Jesus than I am, but in that situation and under those circumstances, uh, I would be establishing my boundaries, right? I would be overwhelmed, I would be angry, I'd be a little frustrated, tired, maybe a combination of all these things. Add into the fact that in Mark's gospel, the crowds are like another character in Mark's story. Always with this curious nature regarding Jesus, but not necessarily because they want to worship him. They are forming because they are interested in Jesus, but they're not ready to simply worship and give their lives to him. Jesus knows that everyone who's coming to him not really wants to understand him, to comprehend him, to love him. So how does Jesus react to all of this curiosity? 
Jesus responds, unlike us, unlike me, uh, he responds with compassion. Rather than responding to their curiosity with anger, rather than demanding that the crowds bend to his will in the way that they should engage with him, rather than bringing forth the law to scatter the crowds, Jesus preaches the word to them. Jesus' compassion extends to all those who are wondering who he really is. And he gives them the understanding of scripture as the first step in exploring their curiosity. His his compassion overcomes all the factors that we would consider to be rude, disruptive, overwhelming. His compassion to curiosity is not to condescend, not to be argumentative, or to be disparaging or defensive. Rather, he gives them exactly what their curiosity is looking for. He gives them his word. This is instructive to us as the church today. Uh, as the hands and feet of Christ, as we, we consider a couple of things when we look at this compassion. Uh, just as in Jesus' day, uh, this world, contrary to popular belief, is more curious, not less, about Jesus. Uh, to be sure, our, our, our culture has found a greater disinterest in God himself. Uh, the Gallup poll recently released in 2022 a study that said belief in God dipped to 81%, a 6% decline. But, but notice something remarkable about that statistic. Four out of five people still believe in a God. The crowds are still curious, church. We might wrongly believe that the working assumption that maybe many of us Christians have here that, oh, you know, no one wants to hear what we have to say about Jesus. Uh, you know, no one, we, we just, uh, you know, it's difficult. It's, and, and that might be more of a response of an excuse and fear to talk to our neighbors or a fear of rejection than it is about the real level of curiosity that people have. Your friends, your coworkers, your families, they do still want to hear about Jesus. However, and this is key in the research that we're seeing in American evangelicalism, uh, church attendance is dropping and church membership is dropping uh, nationwide in America. Uh, And we can't blame it, by the way, all these numbers all on COVID. Uh, Why is that? What's the disconnect between the curiosity of our nation in God and the declining interest in Christianity? And there are many things that we can say about this, but I believe one of the real factors of this decline is that American evangelicalism has had, tried this great social experiment in the last five decades of the American church that has, for various reasons, conflicted with our testimony in the belief of the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God. Uh, America believed that scripture, scripture minimalism could be the answer, so we pushed the Bible aside in favor of what we wrongfully thought to be solutions. America believed in denying biblical tension in favor of absolutism, so we chose sides over issues like spiritual piety versus cultural engagement, justice versus mercy, individual salvation versus corporate responsibility, grace versus accountability, and tried to divide the word of God where the word of God did not divide itself. America cast aside the moral obligation of the word of God, calling the commands of God legalism, not understanding that legalism isn't Obedience to God's commands, legalism is adding on to the word of God things he did not say. And both theological fundamentalism and theological liberalism are rightly being called out in today for their its hypocrisy and inconsistency in completely upholding the word of God. America tried to syncretize the word with the other philosophies of our day, allowing for the forces and evil of other things like Christian nationalism, 
moralistic therapeutic deism, prosperity theology to lose an entire generation of believers who are yearning for God's word and yet hate how it has been twisted. My friends, church, we have a crisis of biblical proportions. And with the crowds of Jesus' day, and with the crowds of 2023 America, Howard County, need right now is for the church to love and treasure God's word and its full counsel to us. Uh, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the optics of reading your Bible. Please don't let the takeaway of this sermon to be to Instagram your quiet times, okay? All right, that is not what I am asking you to do. <laughs> I just want you to know that our world, in the core part of their being, what Scripture is telling us and what we know, they want and desire Jesus, and they're curious for him. So let's give them Jesus and the Word of God. Let's let our lives reflect the same type of curiosity that led these people to see what this Jesus of word and deed is all about. Let them ask, why, why in the world would this church, would this group of people give up their Sunday mornings to go serve and to worship? Why, why in the world are these people following Jesus and loving their neighbors and defending the poor and the orphan and the widow and fighting for the cause of justice. Let's give them what Jesus gave the crowds that he, may, that he knew may never come to worship him, but still through his compassion, lovingly, though it's inconvenient, though we're tired, though we're weary from travel, though we may face backlash and difficulty, let's give them the full counsel of God. And that's what leads us to the next part of our story. And the real excitement of what happens when the word of God is released. We see Jesus' compassion to belief. This is our second point here today. And there are those in the crowd that are more than just curious for Jesus. There's actually a group in there that, that long to find him and that will do anything to seek out after him. As we all know, proximity isn't the same as faith. And here we see the distinction between those who are wanting to know more versus those who are really longing for Jesus. And we see their response, the, the desperation they have to find him, particularly in this paralytic man and his four friends. We know they are desperate for a ton of different reasons. Uh, one, the first is that the paralytic man would have sought out Jesus in a social setting where that his very presence would have been seen as spiritually unclean. In Second Temple Judaism and Roman paganism, a person's physical condition was seen as revealing the spiritual condition of a person's life, which means that from a societal standpoint, the paralytic should have been as far removed from the presence of this rabbi and certainly the crowds of people that were there. This was more than social distancing. This was social exile. Not only that, the problem of access to Jesus comes into play. The crowd is at the door. It's bursting at the scenes. There are plenty of people who have heard about this healer who are looking to seek him, so they need to find another access point, mainly breaking through the roof to reach him. So what's the third problem of reaching Jesus? The access point to the roof was often, as houses were built back then, uh, through a narrow staircase that went up to the roof, or in some cases, it was just a ladder. And so... This ladder gave you access to this mud thatch Galean roof with, where it's just a bunch of small poles 
and sticks that were crosshatch, all right? This was not like necessarily the most structurally sound building in the world. This is not an ADA compliant like building at all, right? And so the very danger of the paralytic being led up to this roof, all right, and being let down from it, them digging through the mud and hoping that the foundation that they're trying to dig through doesn't fall underneath them, they would have to risk not only legal trouble, but they were actually very much risking their physical safety just to even get to Jesus, all right? Now, fourth, you have to actually believe that after all of this, Jesus is going to look at this situation and go, yeah, I'm going to heal you, okay? After all of that, you're risking social, legal, personal harm by even attempting this, and you actually needed to have faith that all of this would work, that you would come to Jesus and that he would heal to kind of think to yourself, what kind of place mentally do you need to be in if you would do all of this? If you were the paralytic and his four friends? There's a desperation there and a longing for Jesus to act because you only believe that he could. I'm not talking about perfect faith. I'm not talking about having an ironclad conviction. I'm not even talking about they knew all of the things doctrines about Jesus before coming to him. I'm talking about a faith that says, I have only one hope right now, and that is going to Jesus and doing anything I can to get to him. Look at Jesus' compassion in this passage. It isn't the kind of response that anyone could have imagined Jesus providing. It certainly isn't necessarily the first thing that the paralytic wants to hear after all of this happens. What does he say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Whereas the paralytic was told his entire life that his humanity and dignity were lessened because of his state, Jesus uses a family term to call him into a part of his kingdom. Think about the kind of dignity that that brings to him in that moment. Whereas everyone would cast him away as a sinner, far removed from the redemption of self. It's obvious due to the state of your paralysis that this is what you deserve. Jesus recognizes the faith of this man. And he sees his faith as one leading to salvation. Whereas the danger of coming to Jesus was real and there would be a fear of Jesus not being able to act, Jesus responds with compassion to this group of friends. To the paralytic. You'll hear me say this quite a bit in this series because this is a common theme in Mark's gospel. The ones who seem farthest away from the grace of God are actually the ones who understands who Jesus really is. Notice what isn't happening here, by the way, in this text. The paralytic and his four friends, they don't wait for the paralytic to get his life together before he comes to Jesus. The paralytic doesn't say he needs to fix the aspects of his uh, paralysis before Christ can heal him. The paralytic doesn't even have his seminary training yet. He hasn't listened to the Bible uh, Project podcast, hasn't read Calvin or Luther or any of the Reformed individuals, right? The friends in the paralytic don't wait till things socially are more comfortable as though that there was somehow an ideal opportunity to come to Jesus in a way that would seem like better timing. Uh, No, no, they come broken, desperate, and in need. They come knowing that it might not be received by others well. They come with all of their frailties, 
and their problems, and they come to Christ longing for his compassion to reach them. They come fully broken, and this is exactly why Jesus is drawn to these men. This is a self-reflection for all of us who have ever said, or maybe some of you who are even saying today, you know, I know I need to come closer to God, but I'm just not ready yet. I'll come closer to Jesus, you know, when I've gotten some things straightened out in my life. I'll come to Jesus when my affairs are in order, when my career is established, when my children behave, when I am not so busy. Uh, Whatever reasons might be, you might be dealing with, and if if there's anything that this story is reminding us today, you don't need to have it all together before you come to Christ. It isn't a burden for the omnipotent God of the universe to hold your struggles and carry them and to walk with you through them. That if salvation, peace, and joy is what you're looking for in this chaotic, ungraceful, relentlessly evil world, you will find it in Christ's forgiving embrace. You come with your brokenness or you will never come at all. You will continue to wait in the crowds, curious about what Jesus will do, but you will never experience the fullness of his grace unless you come to him. So we welcome all of you who come to City of Hope in all of these struggles. You don't have to have everything worked out in your life to be loved here. You don't have to have the perfect family. You don't have to have the greatest understanding of theology. You don't have to feel like you've got it all figured out, but come to Christ's church, and we pray here that you would find compassion. Come to Christ's church and discover the joy of forgiveness greater than, than what you even think that you need right now. And if you're one of those people who's got it all figured out, you got it all working and put together, you can still come here, but we just might think you're a little weird, all right? Even if you think that no one will accept you because of your condition, my prayer is that this church can reflect the kind of love that can point you to a Christ who sees beyond what the world sees, calls you into his family here, and says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. This is the compassion of Christ on display here in Capernaum. But there's another group within this crowd that we need to talk about, and it's our good old friends from last week, the scribes. If the crowds are a central character in regarding the curiosity of Jesus' mission, the scribes represent a central character in Mark regarding the criticism of Christ's mission. Jesus' compassion to the scribes is an interesting response that we need to take a look at. Now notice here, by the way, in this passage, the scribes aren't saying their criticisms aloud. As what often happens in large groups gathered together and hear a speaker talked, there are those who are in a silent minority forming mental objections and disagreements in their minds. And the theological watchdog police of the scribes has just kicked in. The blasphemy bells are ringing in their head and objecting to the very thing that Christ is claiming that he is doing in this moment. There's no way a man could forgive sin. Who has the power to do that at all? This objection is more than challenging Jesus' words. It's challenging his very nature. The sin of blasphemy in the time of Jesus' era was a claim that was not to be taken lightly. There were no religious freedom protection laws. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. To be called a blasphemer meant that you were accused of being the kind of person that was worthy of the death penalty. Leviticus 24, 16. 
in a theocratic state of Israel, blasphemy was the death sentence. And again, we have this battle, like we did last week, between the religious authority and the authority of Christ. To the scribes, no regular man could ever come close to pronouncing forgiveness of sins on others. There were only, in fact, three things in the Jewish world system that could ever even come close to a man offering that kind of authority to forgive sins. The first, the high priest, a figure in Jewish customs that could offer forgiveness of sins, but even then, the high priest could only offer it on the Day of Atonement. The second was the authority of a prophet-like figure, whom, like the prophet Nathan, who forgave King David, but even then, the prophet could only declare what the Lord had done. A prophet could never give forgiveness of sins on their own. And third was this figure they called the Messiah, a figure that would come about to bring the cleansing of Israel by removing the godless demonic forces and protecting the people from sin, establishing this kingdom that the Jewish people were, were waiting for. This is critical. This, and, and, and this Messiah, at least in this point up until Jesus' story here in Mark 2, the Messiah even did not have the power to forgive sins this Messiah was simply to act as a great king. It was a, it was a ruler who protected his people from sin. So you've got to understand it from the scribes' view, right? We've got to kind of be charitable to their worldview here. The idea of a paralytic man who just committed breaking and entering, entering his, into the uncleanliness in front of this rabbi, undeservedly would somehow receive forgiveness of sins from this man? It would have been incomprehensible. So their minds are racing. Their internal blood is boiling. It's screaming. It's shouting. This man cannot do this. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, can hear them loud and clear. They want him dead. They deny every part of his divinity and his dignity. They know in their minds and hearts Jesus must be stopped. So how does Jesus respond to this volley of hatred in the hearts of men who, by the way, should have known better. And here we see, in our last point here, the compassion of Christ to his critics. Jesus at this point, though he could, present all the information of why they are wrong. Jesus, though he could, he doesn't utilize the crowd to his advantage to shun or shame the scribes. Jesus doesn't say, although he could, well, you believe this? No coming back from that. Jesus aims here to persuade those who would long for his death. Jesus loves his enemies better than we could ever love our enemies. And in doing so, he demonstrated the compassionate love of Christ towards even his harshest critics. He knows that the scribes are thinking that forgiving sins is an easy thing to claim from a heretic. He knows that the scribes are thinking that it's harder for Jesus to actually heal this paralytic man in front of him. In other words, the scribes are looking for physical evidence as the harder task to prove God's identity rather than what Jesus knows to be the harder task, forgiveness of sins. I mean, who could blame the scribes at this point? Knowing you're forgiven of sin seems like a subjective spiritual reality. It comes with no visible change at the moment of its declaration. There's nothing that reveals the heart of this happening in its moments. Surely if Jesus is truly saying what he is saying, then he will do the quote-unquote harder thing and heal the man. 
The weakness of the scribe's faith is something that Jesus wants to persuade, which is why he asks them a question rather than shouting down at them and looks to demonstrate for them the answer that they are truly looking for. Jesus says, you long for me to display that I am greater than the prophets, greater than the priests, greater than the Messiah figure that you were looking for? You want me to, to, to do what is perceived to be the harder thing? All right, I will. And there are times in Jesus' ministry where he doesn't always give a sign, but in this moment, the compassion of Jesus is extending to the scribes in a way that demonstrates his love for his enemies. Because here's the real truth, as we all know. Forgiving sins is way harder than physical healing. Sometimes for some of us in this room, forgiving ourselves is way harder than any physical ailment or injury that we have. You see, the miracle that Jesus performs in healing this man's physical needs is there only to display the reality of Jesus being who he says that he is. That Jesus is the one who can do the impossible that the scribes have already ruled out in their mind. That Jesus will go, yes, in the forgiveness of sins, even to the cross, experiencing the brutality of physical torment, of spiritual agony, of being forsaken by the Father, taking the judgment and penalty we deserve for our sins, giving us undeserved righteousness, cleaning us from all of our shame, restoring our dignity. That's the hard thing. That's the miracle. But Jesus' compassion for his enemies extends to granting their request not even because they will accept him or receive him, but simply because he is compassionate to the ones who hate him. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, and as is my custom, um, every year I listen to the entire I Have a Dream speech in full and make it a point to read his letter from Birmingham Jail in full. And I'd recommend for you all to do the same if you want to be challenged. But this week, I got an opportunity to read uh, some of his sermon text in full, his transcripts in full. Uh, you can find them online, uh, where he was a pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church directly before the national spotlight pulled him towards leading the civil rights movement charge. I was moved by the fact that when you read his sermons, King's heart for racial reconciliation was firmly a scriptural value. And his commitment to the word of God, and more importantly, a call to consider the compassion for the very people that hated him and that wanted him dead. In his November 17th, 1957 sermon entitled, Loving Your Enemies, Dr. King preached these words, speaking of the redemptive power of love, of the love of Christ, finished work on the cross, and how that extends to our enemies. And, and if we could have that on the screen, I'd love to read uh, this little section in full here. This is Dr. King's words. There's a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. But never feel that the tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. 
So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bend will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We'll be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us, and we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. King would not know at the age of 26 years old when he preached this sermon how true his words would be in his own relation to loving his enemies. King would rather die than hate them. And even though we lost King, he demonstrated through his love the same kind of love our Savior has for those whom he preached to in word and deed. King would rather die than hate others because Christ would not, would, because Christ would rather die than not display his compassionate love. Christ in these moments reminds us of what will come on the cross of Calvary where he says to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ in the moments of his hardest critics finds love in the form of compassion to show them their unbelief and call them to himself, the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins. Christ loved them. Christ would rather die than hate them. This is the mystery and beauty of Christ's compassion in this passage. And as you hear me say plenty of times here in this series, the miracle isn't simply just about the miracle. It's pointing to the miracle of God himself for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing of his people. It's the compassion of Christ, not just meeting our physical needs, but our great need in being restored to the redemption of Christ. It's about seeing Jesus live, live out these things of grace and compassion and mercy and grace. And then for us as his church to go and do the same. To preach in word and deed to the skeptic, to the curious, to the desperate, to those who are longing for Jesus, to those who hate your guts and just want to see you dead. So I'll end this sermon in the same way I've ended uh, previous sermons and just simply ask, who is Jesus to you? This is the challenge Mark is presenting to us today. The crowds walked away glorifying God, amazed at what he had done. And as you sit in this room of believers and you look around and you, and you notice that every single person in here has been transformed by the grace of God, all coming to him now in worship, what is your response to this Christ? How will you respond to his compassion and his love? Will you simply remain curious? Do you wish him a blasphemer and wish him dead? Or will you come as you are, desperate, poor, and needy, and lay yourself before him and ask for his grace? We have the opportunity to do this now in prayer. So let's pray together.